Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am truly thrilled to welcome our next guest. Her name is Natalie Walton. And Natalie is the former CEO and co-founder of Expectful, the mental health app for before, during, and after pregnancy, which was recently acquired by Babylist. She is now the VP of brand and social impact at Babylist, and I'm excited to hear how this all works together. With Mother's Day being celebrated and Mental Health Awareness Month coming at the same time, I couldn't imagine a better time to have her on our show. Hi, Natalie. Hello. So nice to meet you in person, finally. Actually, we're not in person. We're on Zoom, but the next closest thing. Um, Yes, no, this is such a pleasure and a treat to meet with you. Now, I've been doing a lot of research on you, and you've had such an amazing career thus far. You know, Google, Airbnb, eBay, to name a few. Just super curious, you know, when you were growing up, what did you want to be when you were gro- when you were little? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, well, the thing that I think I wanted to be most was an editor of a magazine. Um, like most millennials, I um, cherish the 17 fall edition magazine or Vogue, um, the September issue. And I just loved everything about magazine editors and how they curated um, some great content. So I'd have to say a magazine editor. Love that. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, which I know gets made fun of a lot, but it's a beautiful state. And did you, I mean, did you have any inkling when you were a kid that you might be, you know, have an entrepreneurial spirit? Obviously, you know, you built something pretty remarkable and um, obviously sold it, but love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So as a, as a child, I feel like I was more like on the artistic spectrum where I would create a lot of art, um, probably getting into that editorial side. And it really wasn't until probably college where I started to become entrepreneurial, um, where the, I guess, growth of eBay. Um, I had a couple of eBay businesses where I sold um, musical instruments, but also I would um, buy things from Century 21 and I would resell them at a profit. Or if you remember Ugg Boots, um, I mean, Ugg's still around, but um, back in 2003, they were really hard to come by. And if you knew where to get them, you could mark them up um, quite handsomely on eBay. And so that was like my first entrepreneurial um, endeavor. And that was when I was in college. Love that. What's the first job, like paid job that you can remember ever in the history of Natalie? Yeah. So this is a, it's a great first paid job. Um, I won um, a contest with Seventeen Magazine and Roxy Quicksilver is a modeling contest. So I um, made my mom drive me to this mall at the shore, uh, at the Jersey Shore. There was probably over a thousand um, teenagers lined up, and we we did the, we did the catwalk. And out of out of the thousand people, I won this modeling contest. And so they paid me to become a Roxy Quicksilver model, um, and it was a really nice paycheck. I don't think I got that nice of a paycheck till I for quite some time. <laughs> 
And I understand that you went to Georgetown, Georgetown University for undergrad. What was your major there? I majored in economics. And then Stanford, again, two incredible, incredible educational institutions. Wait, right, what tell us a little bit about your time at Stanford? Stanford was incredible. So I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, and I'd say twenty years ago or so when I was in in the college era and in high school era, like after school, you kind of did one of three paths. You would become a consultant, you would go into finance or like maybe you'd go into marketing. But there was really no like here's your own custom career path. And if you went on that, like you were really brave. Um and I didn't have <laughs> I wasn't that kind of brave. Um so I went into finance. I worked um at JP Morgan following college. And it really wasn't for me. Uh, and getting to Stanford is I was invited to a prospective students weekend and I went to Stanford and I met what people called themselves as entrepreneurs. And I, I met them for the first time and I realized, oh my gosh, it is possible for you to pursue a career that you want and you know make it up on your own and be successful. And it was so eye-opening to me. Um, and I think it was also something like going on with the West Coast because it's very different energy than I was experiencing on the East Coast. And after I went to Stanford's Prospective Students Weekend, I said, I have to find a way to make it to Stanford. So like I put my whole energy into getting into business school at Stanford that year. Yeah, in Stanford right now, I have a, a daughter um, who's first year in college and, um, you know, Stanford is just like such a dream for so many kids. It's such a hard school to get into these days, such such a dreamy place. But um, yeah, just really, really impressive, um, both, you know, both schools that you went to. So awesome. Um, you said that the the you were really inspired um, at that weekend. And you said that this person, um, there was somebody there who really, you know, talked to you about being able to create your own path and that you didn't have to follow somebody else's path. Um, you know, what do you think an alternative route would have been for you if you had not met this person? What do you think um, your route would have been? Ooh, that is such a good question. Um, I think eventually I would have made it into business school probably, but maybe not have been as inspired. Um, so it's, it, it was really, I mean, that was the catalyst for me in, in thinking more broadly, but just being in, um, being in, in in banking and the background that I had, it was kind of like you would go to business school eventually. I just made sure that it happened right then and there. Like I was in a three-year analyst program and I said, no, I'm not going to make it three years. Like I'm getting in this fall. Um, so I think that person was just a catalyst for getting me to where I was supposed to be sooner. Right. And I think two things. Number number one, I see that, you know, so many women who I talk to on She Dynasty start as like kind of a creative spirit and then go into like banking or finance and then somehow end up back into entrepreneurship. It's a really interesting um, kind of, you know, just pattern that I see amongst so many of the women that I interview. And I think there's something about the combination of, um, being creative and going into kind of finance or banking that somehow spawns off um, entrepreneurship. Does that make sense to you? It makes so much sense to me. I mean, like, yes, I, I know that I read so many stories of people like myself. I mean, I think that our goals in life, our mission in life is to uncover the seeds of who we truly are. Um, and for me being in finance, it was like so repulsive to who I'm meant to be. It's like, I'm meant to be this creative student, not meant to be chained to a desk at 14 hours a day. 
Um, and, but, and, but I think a lot of people, a lot of creative women take that path because they, um, that that's just what they think, or they, they they don't take the creative path. They take that path onto banking because that's what they're told, you know, this is what society uses is what's, you know, valuable. But today, uh, in 2000, like in the 2023, I think people view that creativity is actually that is a true gift. So I, I'm, I can relate to what you're saying for sure. You think entrepreneurship is for everyone? Or do you have to be kind of built a certain way for it? No, I don't think entrepreneurship is for everyone. It really isn't. Having just gone through it, I think entrepreneurship is really tough, um, particularly being a founder or a solo founder. Um, it is, it's tough. It's lonely. There's a lot of pressure. It is not for everyone. Um, there are people that just sh- shouldn't do it. If, if it's not like... If it's not calling you, if it's not keeping you awake at night, it's something like you probably shouldn't do because there are just sacrifices, the sacrifices to your mental health, to your family, to your finances. There are a lot of sacrifices and you have to really want to do it for something that's greater than yourself. Like you, I think to be a founder, you have to be mission driven. Um, And so I wouldn't recommend entrepreneurship for everyone. But, you know, if you were meant to be an entrepreneur and you do become one, it is really exciting. And, you know, it's... What's also super interesting is um, I love how like one conversation or one experience can change your entire path. And I think it's so important um, for you know people who are listening to understand how important it is to go try new experiences and go talk to people. Because even for me, one conversation changed my entire path from me wanting to be a doctor one day to owning an advertising agency. And just because I was so inspired by something that I didn't even know existed. And, you know, I'm assuming that was, you know, maybe similar for you is your your eyes were open to something that you didn't even really understand. And all of a sudden you started to do research into what that could look like. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what it is, is I didn't know what was possible. I'd say that happened to me. And 15 years ago when I was thinking about business school, but it also happened to me coming to expectful, um, just three years ago was that I, even though I, I've had an interesting career in tech, I didn't really realize the possibility of what entrepreneurship was um, until I started talking to investors um, and and just other founders and realizing, oh, wow, there's this whole new world. And I hope that that's the pattern of my life, that I just keep uncovering what's possible, like, because that is a really cool journey. A great theme, just kind of trying to figure out what's possible just by opening, you know, being curious, talking to people, you know, experiencing new things. I think it's such an important um, lesson for everyone listening who, you know, really wants to further their career, whether you're an entrepreneur or you want to, you know, just work for a company that it's still different talking to different people and different experiences definitely can change your entire path. I think it's so important to know that. So let's start with your spark. Um, I understand you came across a coffee table book um, on entrepreneurship in Paris during the 2008 crisis. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so I think something to know about me is I, I've always wanted to become Parisian. Um, as My name is Natalie. It's the French spelling of Natalie. And I was born American Natalie without an H. And at age four, um, my my parents bought me back a bracelet with Natalie spelled in French. And I, at age four, I changed my name to the French spelling of Natalie, like legally changed my name. So I've had this affinity towards France in particular Paris. And, and I, I spent a lot of time in Paris in high school and then also as an adult. And I came across this coffee book that just talked about how um, Paris, 
the revolution in Paris of like the bistros and the cafes and um, just uh, the cultural or like renaissance that they had um, following the the financial crisis in 2008. And it was really sharing that just so many people, they didn't have a, a choice, like they had to create their own destiny. Um, and that's how like the Paris that we know today, uh, it was born. And I loved the book because I love Paris. Um, but I, I also just love the stories of these entrepreneurs. And when I was kind of at home by myself um, in 2020, I kind of realized like, this is my 2008 moment. Like this is a moment where the world is undergoing this really big shift. Um, and so you know, maybe there are these times in your life where everything changes and it's okay to make that shift. And so that was the spark was, was having remembered that book and then being in kind of like a similar situation, 2020 to 2008. I was like, aha, I think that there's, there's a shift happening right now. So tell us then how that led to your spark for taking the risk and starting Expectful during the pandemic. Yeah. So my story of how I got to Expectful is interesting. So that's caused a spark um, reading this book. And then I thought, you know, at the time I was at Airbnb and I said, I really want to figure out a way to get more involved in entrepreneurship, but I didn't want to just completely take a leap into entrepreneurship. Um, and so I found this company Expectful, which I actually had used in my own pregnancy just a few months earlier. And Expectful was a meditation app for pregnancy. Um, and I had a great experience with Expectful. And um, so in the spring of 2020, I had this opportunity to advise Expectful. And I thought, wow, this is a kind of a really cool way for me to get into entrepreneurship because like, I can keep my day job. At the time, I was on maternity leave. And I don't think many people would take on like a new job or an advisory job when they were on maternity leave, but I was like, why not? I'm up anyway. Um, so like I can, I can squeeze it into my schedule. And I guess I just formed a good relationship with the founder, but I also had a big impact in like the short time that I was there. So much so that the founder asked if I'd consider coming on board as a late stage co-founder and CEO. And I guess just like with everything that was going on in 2020, going back to that book and just thinking about my life um, overall, it was like, it felt, it felt scary to take this leap, but it didn't feel dangerous. Like what felt dangerous would be if I stayed on like my current career path and I got to 80 years old and like, I didn't ever take a chance on myself. That's what would have been dangerous. And so even though it was scary, I kind of understood the difference between scary and dangerous. And I took that leap to what was scary. And it was probably like one of the best decisions I've ever made. Love that. So um, you kind of transitioned really quickly to becoming a CEO. Um, tell us about that transition. What was that like? Was there a huge learning curve? Huge learning curve. <laughs> so I came on board in September of 2020. And the first thing I was told I had to do was fundraise. Um, I'd never fundraised before, but we were part of um, kind of like an incubator. And as a part of the incubator, we got some fundraising support and it was going to disappear if I didn't use it soon. So I had to use it to fundraise. Um and so, yeah, my job was like, I came on board, I had to think of what is this bigger vision that I had for the company, and then I had to go raise money for it. Um, and fortunately, it was like successful. And my first 90 days, I raised $4.2 million. 
um, seed round and I, I went out to pitch on election day, which was the worst day to pitch. Um, but I closed the seed rounds or I got a term sheet by Thanksgiving. So it was just like, it was constant learning. Um, I had to learn how to fundraise. And then I thought, oh, okay, all the hard work is in fundraising. And then I'm done fundraising. It's like, oh, okay, now you've got to run the company, which was really hard because I had been previously in biz dev, product partnerships, some biz ops, but I had never run... I'd never managed engineers before. I'd never managed marketing, performance marketing before. I didn't manage HR. Like there was just so much that I had to learn. And it was, I was just constantly drinking from the fire hose. Can you give us some tips and tricks on successful fundraising at that stage? Yeah. So I think that it's always great. I recommend this to everyone. I've, I've started doing it in a small capacity. Is just find a fundraising coach or someone to support you. And the reason is, is, is because, you know, as a founder, your most valuable asset is your own time. And there's just some, I think one of the best lessons I had as a founder was sometimes you just have to pay people to help you and like to get over things really quickly. And having someone that can hold your hand to tell you like, here's how to get a, a tight pitch here. I'll give you like all of the feedback in, in your pitch and, um, you know, make intros and, and help you get your data run together. So I, I recommend that to anyone is, is to find a, a coach or someone to support you for that that period if if you don't have that support. But other than that, I think, you know, if, if for some reason that's not feasible for you, I recommend um, really having a great story um, is I think having a really strong pitch deck and like why do you have good founder market fit is really important. And then my other advice would be make sure that your business is, is a good fit for capital. I think probably a lot of reasons why people get rejected is like their business is just not a good fit for venture capital. You need to understand the role of venture capital. And that is to throw it like, it is putting gasoline on on like a fire and, and it should, should blow up. But like if you're, market is too small or your growth is too small, then you really should not raise venture capital. And I think that's why a lot of people face rejection is it's not because it's like they're bad or their business, their idea is bad. It's just, it's not a good fit for venture capital. Why do you choose, why do you choose going down the road of venture, of venture capital um, to fund versus like friends and family investment? Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and why you chose one road over the other? Yeah, so I mean, friends and family is probably what you would do for your first for your pre-seed round, like for a quarter of a million to half a million dollars. But if you're raising beyond that, I think you probably should bring in institutional capital, just because I mean, unless you're very very wealthy friends, it's one it's like hard to fill the round. But also at that point, um, I think bringing venture capital, like hopefully you're bringing in people that have some type of expertise that your friends and family don't. Um, but it's really like, I think once you get it past the half a million dollar check size, it's most people would bring in some type of institutional investors because not that many people have that many check sizes. And I would say no one, I would advise against having a really large cap table, meaning where you have like hundreds of investors, it's just messier and it's nicer when you have like fewer people to have to communicate with. And how do you how do you know uh, what venture capitalists to reach out to? How do you narrow down your list? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one way to understand who to reach out to is 
Um, one is you should go on Twitter because that's where VCs live. So you could do a chat GPT search um, looking for the best VCs um, and look for VCs who have invested in companies that are similar to the area that you're in. For example, if you're building in women's health, you probably don't want to pitch to some investor who only invests in crypto. You need to have some type of investor market fit too. And so I looking at investors who've invested in similar companies, I think is a great place to start. So people who specialize in something similar to what you're doing. Similar. I mean, it, it's, it gets to a point where if I, I talked to many investors who said, oh, I, you know, I can't talk to you because I'm invested in the XYZ company and they're a competitor. And so like that gets challenging. But generally, I, I've actually found investors to be helpful in the sense that a lot of people that you speak with, even if, they, if they're not a good fit for you, if you've got a strong pitch and they believe in you, they're open to introducing you to their connections. And so I think that that's actually a really great leverage of playing the, like going out to raise fundraising is, is figuring out how to leverage those relationships, just anyone you pitch and have them introduce you to their contacts. It's a great um, flywheel effect. Love that. And I just want to note that today is May 1st, uh, Monday, 2023. And this is the first time anyone has mentioned ChatGPT on our show. So just shows that, you know, this is going to start becoming a force and how people, um, you know, think about business, create business, move towards business. But I think that's a great suggestion. But just wanted to call that out because you're the first person to mention it. Okay, we're going to move on to some of your snags. Um, so you were a first-time founder with Expectful, taking on tons of jobs you'd never encountered before. How did you, you know, kind of rise to the challenge? How did you learn how to do all those things you didn't know how to do before? For me, the best way that I learned it, that I learned as a founder was to build out my founder community. So I was a part of an incubator. There are about five or six founders in our community. And I would just ask them for questions, like any questions I had, I would, I would ask them. And it was so great because if I spoke to another founder versus just an operator or even an investor, the founder could direct me to the solution in a matter of like minutes or seconds. And they would literally just shave hours off of my day by talking to founders. So I think building that strong founder community is one of the most crucial things that you can do as a founder to save time. Love that. Is that a community you built on your own or how did you find your people? So I was a part of an incubator where there we were in cohorts. And so that's how I met my first founder. And then after I raised institutional capital, I joined Harlem Capital and they have an excellent founder community where we're all on Slack. And we just, anytime you have a question, you ask, you can ask people a question for the SVB crisis. Like all the, even though I, was at a um, expectful by that time, just being community where you could see like, this is how you respond. Um, this is what you need to do. It was just really game changing. So I, I do recommend if you have the option when you're raising capital, or if you're thinking about going to an incubator, finding a place that has that community, if you're a first time founder is, is highly valuable. All right. So not only um, were you a first-time founder, you were also mid-maternity leave from your job at Airbnb and a new mother. Tell us what it was like to kind of balance all of that. Yeah. I mean, that is, I think, one of the most challenging things that I had to do. It was uh, being 
being a first time mom with a, a newborn or an infant, a lack of sleep, and then, you know, building another business at the same time. I think what motivated me was just the idea of building the, the opportunity that I had with Expectral was to create something that I had never had the privilege of creating before in my career. I never um, had the opportunity to build something so mission driven, which it, it, it's kind of incredible. I, I think back to when I decided that I was going to join Expectful. And I told some of my friends, my peers, I said, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, what do you think about it? And I just had so many people coming to me and saying, like, I want to help you. I want to make this intro. Like, here's how I can help you in this way. And I go back to thinking, like, hmm, I've been working now for almost 15 years. And no one has ever gone out of their way to say, like, let me help you here when you're working at, you know, a big corporation. No one's like, I'm going to help you really do well in the corporation. But when you're building a mission-driven company, particularly to help moms and pregnant women, um, people that resonate to your mission or they want to see you succeed. Um, and so it's just like, I had this energy that I can't really even explain, but it was that that was the energy that I was building this mission-driven company that was fueled me. I love that. You know, I was, you know, poking around um, ex- expectful, something I wish was around when I was, my kids are much older now. I have one in college, but, you know, obviously it deals with fertility pregnancy, motherhood, and loss, all things that I went through. And each one of those is like its own different, you know, force and animal to, to, to deal with, even though they're all related, just such different emotions that uh, you go through with every single step of those. Were you, you know, were you a part of kind of building out that kind of full, you know, funnel of every part of um, what it, you know, what motherhood looks like and, you know, everything that comes with it? I think to Mark's credit, and we, when I came on board, we really did have um, a great funnel of the fertility, of the loss, um, and of the various stages of pregnancy. And I think where I came in to add was, helping like create a more diverse perspective. Um, I feel that, I mean, particularly I, I am a black woman and having gone through pregnancy as a black woman in America, like it was, it was a really frustrating experience. Black women die at rates of four times that of, of white women. And I, I had like a very harrowing pregnancy that almost resulted in my son's death. And so like, I was intimately familiar with the, challenges that Black women face. And so when I came on board, we created um, content specifically for Black moms and we worked with trauma-informed specialists to create um, content for trauma, like people that have um, experienced trauma, either a loss or rape um, and just creating content that's like sensitive to like a a myriad of needs that that women have. Um, And so while I'd say we had all of this the funnel, I really helped go and create some of the depth of like, here are the unique situations you might have. Um, and here's content specific to that. And that's just some feedback that we get that people really appreciate the the nuanced content that we have. Like if you have gestational diabetes, we have a meditation for that. For C-section births, we have meditations for that. And so it's very detailed um, content for whatever you might be going through. We have thousands of meditations. 
such important work and it's, it is very nuanced because each experience is different in its own way. So I love that, you know, that it, that you really recognize that and put so much like care and love into that. So, so awesome. So you, you also mentioned that oftentimes you feel like you were failing and you, that you, you also said that your therapist said some pretty impactful words um, to you. Will you share those with us? Yeah. So I mean, I think when I look back over the time I'd expectful, oftentimes I felt like I was feeling like our numbers, I, they, I think her numbers are pretty impressive. There's a lot going on um, at the time that I, I was building expectful, namely um, iOS 14.5 happened. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, that was basically privacy restrictions that Apple introduced. And it just completely changed the world of marketing. And so no one knew from like the largest companies to the smallest companies, no one knew what was going on for a good six to 12 months. Um, And so acquisition marketing just kind of was turned on its head. And uh, like everyone else, I was, I was kind of struggling with, with figuring out this new landscape. And you know, I had made a couple of hiring mistakes because I had never hired a marketer before. And I had to deal with having made some not so ideal hires. And like there were times where I thought, oh, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not nailing this. And for most of my life, I had been used to nailing it. And that's because I'd been in the same profession for a long time. I was biz dev partnerships. Like anytime you put me in a biz dev or partnership thing, I would nail it because that's what I've been doing. But this was my first time as a founder and I did feel like I was feeling. And when I, when I shared this feedback with my therapist, my therapist said, Natalie, have you ever been a founder before? And I said, no, this is my first time. And she's like, you're not failing. You're learning. You it's, it's really hard. There isn't one particular CEO. There isn't one founder. No one gets it right on their first time. You're learning and you have to give yourself that grace because in order to get to excellent, you have to learn. And so that was a really helpful reframing for me because I realized like I'm doing the best I can and I'm learning and it's the first time. And, uh, you know, this is, I'm doing the best I can do. You also mentioned um, having to learn to correct your mistakes quickly was really important. And one example you gave was um, hiring. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I I I made some hiring mistakes, but the first time I think when I shortly after raise the raise the fundraise, I decided okay, I need someone that is very skilled in marketing because I'm not skilled in marketing. I've never managed performance marketing before. Um, I'm learning these terms for the first time, so I need to bring in someone that knows what they need. And I think this is also really good advice I'm about to give is is I had a couple of investors tell me what type of marketer I needed. But they didn't really know. Like they they just gave their perspective based on what they knew. And I don't know if there's someone that would have told me like this is the exact type of marketer you need and would have gotten it right. But I think as a founder, it's really important to understand of like where people are coming from and the advice that they're giving you because it's it really it might not be the right advice. Like you might think, oh, this person is an investor, they know what they're talking about. But it's very well like they might not. Um, and so oftentimes, like you have to develop that muscle to know, is this advice good advice or not good advice? And how I would have really learned that is I, w- I think the best way for me to have learned what I needed in this job was to actually just do the job myself for a couple of weeks, even though I didn't know how to do it, but like try my best to figure it out. So then I know what type of person we need. Um, 
And, and so like that, that was just like a, a, you know, pretty painful lesson where like I had this advice of this is the type of marketer you should need. I went out to hire them. It was not the type of marketer that I should have, that I needed. And I found out there's shortcuts like of, you know, ways that you can curtail your, your hiring mistakes. But I think the matter of fact is probably most people have hiring mistakes. I don't know anyone that gets hiring right a hundred percent of the time. Um, and I think the important thing is just to have the courage and, to course correct quickly, which is really painful, but it's really the only thing that you can do and just move on. Yeah. And listen, I can totally relate. I've made some hiring mistakes in my life. And I think, you know, my advice here is always um, just kind of slow down and really, really, because oftentimes we're hiring for roles that we're not experts in, to your point. And so, you know, having as much of an understanding as you can about the role. And I love the idea of like giving a shot, you know, as, as a, as a founder, if you have, if you have the ability to do that, I think that is so, so brilliant. Cause then you get a really good understanding for, you know, the kind of person, the temperament, the skill set they need to have, but then really obviously doing your homework, talking, you know, checking references, all kinds of things. Sometimes, you know, the mistake I've made is sometimes I'll have a conversation and, I get too excited too quickly because you think, oh, that they just said all the right things and we jived. And it's sometimes it's just so much deeper than that, right? Just really understanding that they have the expertise and the skill set and experience and, you know, obviously just the right sensibilities for your company. I think, I think your advice is really, really spot on. So thank you for that. So um, I do want to um, transition now to Babylist because obviously that's kind of the newest thing that you are working on. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that transition. And, you know, the, the world of registry has changed so much since, again, since I became a mom, um, I think 19 years ago, I, the way I registered is I would walk into, there was like one option. I walked into Babies R Us and I would, you know, to sit with somebody and write down some things and now everything is online and it's changed. And even the things that you can buy have evolved so much. I mean, wow. So tell me all about Babylist and your role and um, how that trans- how that transition happened. Yeah, so Babylist acquired Expectful um, at the end of last year. And um, what is really exciting is just I'm so energized by Babylist's mission to support parents. And I think Expectful really complements this strategy because Expectful does a great job in supporting parents a bit earlier in the journey than Babylist does. So for example, supporting people in fertility and supporting moms um, in that um, first trimester. And, and that's an area where Babylist historically has, you know, they come in when someone is a little bit further along in their journey. And so I think Expectful is just a beautiful complement to what Babylist already has. Um, and it's been a couple of months now that we've been with Babylist and it's been a fantastic transition. I've been, I, since I've worked in corporations before, I've been a part of a couple of other acquisitions and normally there's some speed bumps, but I say like we're fully integrated, like the team is, everyone is integrated and excited and um, they're, they're busy at work um, building the future of Expectful. And uh, I, I'm excited about what's to come. And so being at Babyless has been just a really um, it, it's it's a nice transition from having been in that founder role for so long um, because it's just an excited company with they're doing so many things so well. Right. Has it been a transition for you to go from a CEO to the role you're in now? 
You know, initially, I think it probably was, but in a welcome way. So it's it's like, I remember I, I had to do taxes for Expectful, um, or not myself, but I had to manage our accountants doing taxes. And I don't know a single person, I guess, unless you're an accountant that says, I love doing taxes. Okay. <laughs> um, and so I think what was the most, the most challenge, it wasn't challenging, but like, I guess the most welcoming transition was my, me and our entire team, we were used to wearing so many hats. I, excuse me, we came over to baby list and we immediately had people to help us. Like we had onboarding support, we had HR, um, we had accountants and they were like, you, you can't do your taxes. You can't do invoices. You should stay away from that. And I thought, wow, this is so welcome. And so um, I, I personally like this stage company a little bit better where it being, you know, a seed stage company, you really have to wear a lot of hats and it's nice for people to have just one or two or three jobs instead of 10 or 20. Yeah, you can focus on doing a few things really, really well, as opposed to trying to do everything really, really yeah, well. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it is. And, and Babyless does a great job of that. Awesome. Tell us um, a little bit, just a little bit about Babyless. Just obviously there's so much competition out there in this space right now. Um, tell us what makes Babylist interesting, different, unique. I'd love to hear from your perspective. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that make Babylist unique. Um, one is, is, is that, I mean, Babylist, it's not just a registry. I know you've mentioned the registry before, but it, it's a it's entire media platform. So um, I think Babyless has fantastic content um, in terms of guides and just help of, of what parents need on their journey, um, not only on babylist.com, but also on TikTok, where we just surpassed uh, a million followers and on Instagram. And so Wherever our users are, we're meeting them with really helpful content. In addition to having um, a, gr- a great place to registry, I mean, a universal registry that's so innovative and so relevant is, is we've just heard that Bye Bye Baby went bankrupt. And like, imagine if you just have your registry in one single place like Bye Bye Baby and that no longer exists. And with Babyless, I mean, I used Babyless as a for my baby shower. And it's like, I could bring in registries from everywhere, from across the entire internet, which is just such an, a, a very cool thing. And it's a fantastic user experience. I mean, talking about what Babylist gets right, they get right the user experience. It's something that all of my friends say, like that are pregnant, I check my Babylist every day and they're highly engaged. So it's not just, it's not just a registry. It's just that it's the media piece and the content piece. And then also Babylist Health. So we um, now offer breast pumps um, through Babyless Health. And so we're just really expanding and being able to serve our users wherever they are in their journey and and, and have content products and, and support them and their families throughout becoming parents. The, the content piece is really, I, I agree, the game changer because, you know, you can be inspired and, you know, obviously to your point, it meets you where you are in your cycle. And, you know, there's you know, that's, it's really important as you're going through, especially for new moms. I mean, you're navigating something so different. So, you know, just kind of being able to read and be inspired as you're making decisions is everything. And again, something I didn't get to experience. So, you know, very, very jealous of the new moms these days that have all these tools at their, at their disposal. 
I mean, talk about just having tools at your disposal. I was getting off of an airplane after a four-hour flight with my two-year-old, and I had just purchased this new travel stroller. Um, my child hadn't slept, like we were a mess, and I didn't know how to open the stroller. And I was able to find a babyless guide online that talked, that like sh- did a demonstration of how to do this. And so it's like it was actually like life-saving because if you've gone on a trip with a four, like a two-year-old, and it's is disaster. And so like, I was able to figure out how to open the stroller in the moment. So I love babyless guys and how they're on video. And it's just, it is what we need. I love it. Well, Natalie, I think you've answered all of my questions. The next part is um, what we call our rapid fire questions. I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and just whatever comes to your mind, you know, just in a sentence would be fantastic. So I'm going to start with what keeps you up at night professionally? I can say nothing anymore. <laughs> Prior to the acquisition, just the stress of being a founder kept me up at night. But I, it's, it's really a nice thing to say that nothing right now keeps me up professionally. There's a, that's a big difference between the kind of entrepreneurial side and the other side of things. Is I mean, it not is a blessing. That, not that there's not stressful um, times for non-entrepreneurs, but I definitely think it's a different, a different way of thinking and being. Um, what is your superpower? think my superpower is partnerships and and just building connections with investors um with business development partners um I really love making partnerships happen what is your greatest weakness oh my greatest weakness is um I do struggle with mornings I think um if I could find a better way to utilize my mornings I would be I'd have a lot more time in my day, but, but weakness, particularly, I mean, but mornings, particularly with a small child, that is a weakness for me. And if you could have one skill set you were naturally good at, what would it be that you don't possess? That I don't possess. Oh, I, I feel like having this morning gene would be a great skill set to have. I mean, there are some people that can only sleep five, that can do really well off of five or six hours of sleep. That's not me. But I think if I had that, um, skill set, I would, uh, I I would really be thriving in life. And what advice would you give to your younger self if you could look back? I would advise my younger self to take so many more risks than I than I did. Um, I think that when you are contemplating a career versus entrepreneurship versus a traditional route, um, or even going to a startup versus a larger company, you just learn so much more in the startup. You learn so much more as an entrepreneur. And yet when you're earlier in your career, that that learning is so critical. And so I would say be take more risks and put yourself in environments where you're going to learn faster. Awesome. And being a, you know, going through being an entrepreneur in um business and you know, dealing with venture capitalists, a very, you know, male dominated um, world. What do you think the biggest challenge facing women today is in business? I think one of the biggest challenges facing women is is we're living in a society right now that I don't think values us as being women. Um, all of our rights are being taken away as women. Um, we're not provided with adequate family leave. Um, and so I just think it's it's really challenging um, showing up and advocating for yourself when you when, when your rights are being taken away. And so that's the biggest challenge I think that's facing all of us is just work feels like we're going backwards. 
I completely understand. Lastly, what does success look like for you? For me, success is is freedom. Um, It's freedom of time um, and the freedom of my mind to pursue things that I enjoy, like reading books. Um, And so I just equate success of, of having being wealthy in terms of time. Well, Natalie, I think we've completed the interview. I really, really appreciate your time and so many great um, nuggets and um, learnings. I really appreciate you sharing that with the audience. And thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. 